if you can articulate and communicate and listen, um, then you will find business success. Um, so it's, it's clearly something, a skill that helps you make a living. I mean, how you do it, I don't really know. All I know is that for me, the bottom level, at interpersonal level, as you said, you know, authenticity is important and, and trustworthiness. So, you know, do what you say and say what you do. I remember once a friend of mine said, when something bad happens to people, sometimes people say, well, look, if there's anything you need, let me know. And uh, this person said to me, no, those are the people that you don't trust that say that. The people you trust are the people that just do something for you. They just do it. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum, and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. For over 25 years, Ralph Green has had an amazing career working with some of the most exciting sports and brand enterprises in the world. During Ralph's 21-year career at Nike, he was at the forefront of some of the most dominant stories in Nike and sports history. Highlights include strategizing and executing all-school NCAA sponsorship deals, signing Tiger Woods, LeBron James, and Kobe Bryant. Ralph also ignited an international wave into the NBA with the identification and signing of Yao Ming, Tony Parker, and Dirk Nowitzki. In this episode, Ralph reveals how fostering relationships and developing trust led to some of the most iconic apparel deals in sports history. Ralph also gives us behind-the-scenes access to the inner workings of how the NBA exploded its global footprint. You do not want to miss these amazing stories. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends and leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. All right, Ralph. Well, thank you for joining us today. I am super excited to have you on. Yeah, it is kind of early for you. Well, hey, I want to come out the gate with this, man. If Dos Equis was starting their most interesting man in the world campaign today, <laughs> I'd say you'd be a top candidate for that title. No, too many. Um, first of all, thanks for having me, Eric. And now that you got me <laughs> drowsy and groggy, I, I might slip up on a question like this. I can. Um, yeah, we've had some good. We had a lot of fun doing a lot of things. Some of it I can't share, though. So I don't know if that'd be a good commercial. <laughs> you are definitely one of the most interesting men I've ever met. And the more research no, I've done, it's just fascinating. So to really help people understand Coach Ralph Green, um, <laughs> I'd really like to unpack your story from the beginning to help people understand your amazing journey and really what you've done as a high performer in your field. So where did you grow up, Ralph? Yeah, I'm um, from Washington, D.C., and um, just loved every minute of it. The the irony is I never, never, once I left, I didn't go back, um, which sometimes I regret. But, yeah, I'm a product of of, uh, Chocolate City, Washington, D.C., in the 60s and 70s. And um, uh, the reason I started being adventurous um, was I went to college on the West Coast after having never visited the West Coast. That totally changed my world. Um, I remember I ended up going to Stanford University after growing up in, as I said, Washington. Uh, I went to, uh, I lived in Prince George's County, lived in D.C., then Prince George's County, but went to a prep school uh, in in Montgomery County. So that kind of already kind of twisted my my uh, my vision of the world uh, or shaped my vision of the world. And then I popped out to Stanford and then, man, that's like being on the moon for a kid like that. And so um, did you visit you know, Stanford l- before you went there? Actually, you know what I did and, and but I visited late. So, you know, I was a, a pretty good football player. Not great, but I, you know, I had some opportunities in college. Anybody that wanted me was East Coast, small college base. You're familiar with like William and Mary. Right. Um, I, I had Bucknell, you know, all that type of school. Um, the reaches for me, I didn't think at all about going to the West Coast. I really was sort of set on going to um, an Ivy League school or Duke. Um, I visited those quite a bit. And, you know, the South, it just wasn't a good fit. <laughs> um, although Duke really did show a lot of interest. Back then, they were not 
very good in football at all. Uh, and then the Ivies, you know, it could have gone anywhere. I um, was accepting Harvard, but got a little trouble on my visit. <laughs> Didn't figure I want to go go in there with a the case. So I, you know, I told told Harvard no. And then uh, uh, Brown was the spot. I mean, I loved Brown. I loved everything about it. It was cool. It was very, very progressive. Um, and then, you know, it was a bad winter in that part of the country then. And we hadn't had a lot of snow, and I just uh, was done with the snow. So I told my mother, I said, if I, if I get into Stanford, man, I'm out of here. Because I thought Stanford, like California, I'm thinking beach and sun. That, that, that's how little I knew uh, about the whole thing. So, um, you know, of course, it snowed just miserably that February. So I jetted out there, took my little raggedy film. You know, back then it was a Super 8, you know, those type of films, you know. <laughs> And um, went out there, and uh, Rod Dowhower was the coach. Um, um, I think Denny Green was out there, the old old man Harbaugh, all those guys. You know, they're like, yeah, you know, you can walk on or whatever. And I'm like, cool. And that was it. I just I left for California then, um, and it was great. It, it was a little different. I mean, up front, you know, uh, just the kids were just so everything was so different than the East Coast back then. You know, this is late seventies, so. Uh, but I, I hung in and I ended up loving it. So that's what I think kind of got me into that zone of, you know, being willing to try anything. Um, and then, you know, once you get into that machine at Stanford, then it, academically, you just, you know, you get on the rhythm and you keep going. So I graduated with business school, took me back to New York. Right. Um, and that's when my New York thing really took off. We had family. My mother's from a large family of several aunts and uncles in New York. So I've been growing up, going up to, you know, it's just the I-95 thing um, from Washington. So I went up a lot on the train, driving, turnpike, the whole deal. But I never lived there, right? I kind of liked it, but I never personally lived there. So when I got out, I moved there. I went to graduate school at Columbia, but then started in kind of the good old traditional advertising you know, not quite Mad Men, although close. We were we were the generation right after Mad Men, so um, it was still you know mainly white male, still three martini lunch, you know all that. But um, you know it was cool. I mean, you learned a lot of basic marketing and advertising. I worked for one of the big Madison Avenue firms called Ogilvy and Mather, and um, you know again you learned the basics. You know, so what, um, what drew you to marketing and advertising and this brand kind of thing? Well, I, um, that was a good question. I mean, the, the 30,000 foot question was, I'm not a math guy. My father was a doctor. My mother was a chemist. I wasn't anywhere near as smart. Um, so I'm like, well, I ain't going that route. So I knew that anything science related wasn't going to happen. So, uh, my majors were, um, uh, econ uh, economics and broadcast journalism. And I really liked the broadcast piece. Um, while in school, uh, I was able to kind of sh uh, moonlight as a um, editor and writer for KPIX, which is a state and Carolyn, which were TV stations down in the Bay Area. And I was a DJ. I was on the air quite a bit um, uh, with different radio stations. So I liked the media thing. But I also saw that a lot of those jobs, I mean, I, you know, I had loans. I, you know, I need I was really thinking about I got to get a job. And I looked at the media thing, the entry-level deal, and that even though it was fun to be on camera, made very little money. And you had to go to, like, you know, Chico or some small town right. um, to start, at least then. Now you don't really have to with all this social stuff. You know, I mean, I could pop up a radio, and I've thought about a pop-up radio station here in my house now. But back then, you kind of had to pay your dues. I really didn't want to go to any place small. Um, I kind of like the big city thing. So that was one of the things that led me to try to think, how can I stay close to this, but go to a place where I could make money. And the only type of businesses that would come, um, at least at Stanford to the career offices were, you know, ad agencies, marketing departments of big consumer goods. That's sort of how you started. And I began to see how the world was moving with advertisers, sponsors, networks, teams, all that, the ecosystem of, of sports, but just marketing in general, where are all the centers of influence and how can you get a job? So that I've picked advertising as, as the thing um, that I thought would, you know, kind of continue the trajectory I was on. So I didn't want to like, you know, graduate from Stanford and go get a $9,000 a year job, you know, in Chico. 
Um, oddly enough, <laughs> what's up, oddly with Chico, enough, man? That's the second time. You've... <laughs> yeah, well, it's just when you in, in, when you look you. at all the markets in California. Like my best friend at KPX was a sports guy. Uh, now he was the sports guy at a big station in San Francisco. He had quite the life. When Mike graduated, I wouldn't want to have that life. And so he started in Chico driving the pickup. I'll, I'll never forget that. That's when you do the reporting and the camera and the editing. You do it all yourself. <laughs> and so, you know, I just wasn't feeling that. The irony is I did go to advertising. And because there's, there was such a demand, um, I didn't make but $9,000 a year anyway. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My first salary was nine nine in 1970. Uh, when the hell was that? 19 in fall of 1979. How no, no, that? no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's three years later. Fall of 1983. So I mean, I was in high school. So 83. Fall of 83. Ogilvy and Mather, assistant media planner, right out of college. Stanford University. Welcome to New York. Here's your salary. $9,900. Where did you a live? A year. A Where did you year. live? Um, in uh, uh, hundred and so you know the um, Jerry Seinfeld. What's the name of his show? The Se- Seinfeld. Yeah, right? yeah. You know the, the T- Tom's Diner where they used to eat. Yeah. I I lived upstairs across the street. I mean, How I would look that? down into the. I lived right look right down, and that's 112th and Broadway. Um, oh, loved it. Oh yeah, not Tom's Diner. What was it called? It was just called uh, like D- restaurant. Diner? That's all it said was yeah, restaurant. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I used to eat there all the time. I mean, there was no Seinfeld then, but uh, yeah, it was that. That's it. And my rent was. See if I can remember two fifty a month for a one room, no bathroom, no no um, uh, kitchen. So I had to share a bathroom, share a kitchen, two fifty. And hey, I'm living in New York, baby, large. You would never have known. I was large. I had one suit, a wool brown pinstripe suit, wool. So the first day I wore it, um, in, you know, September in New York is hot and muggy. I'm on the one train, the last train to be air conditioned in New York. Sweating like a pig, the sweat's coming out of my armpits on my suit. My day one, day one, I want to call my mother. I don't think this is going to work. She's like, "You better do something, man. You need another suit." Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking at your life here. There's some stuff that I was digging that I didn't even know about. Um, <laughs> you go from advertising. Did you go straight into sponsorship with the NFL or did you do athlete management oh, too? Oh, man. Yeah. Um, no. Um, so the ad thing back then uh, was kind of powered by these big, huge companies that had big budgets and did different businesses of advertising. So I was on to get well-rounded. I had like a, you know, what then was called tech. I mean, it sounds stupid now, but um, I was on technology. And the only reason they put me on that because I said I wasn't a tech guy, it was because I went to college in California. And that's the only reason. They were like, oh, you you must know computers because you're from California. It was hilarious. So they put me on AT&T, um, which at that time was trying to get into computers. And then the, my consumer piece I learned, um, I was like Campbell Soup. So I had, you know, a traditional kind of real uh, dyed-in-the-wool consumer marketing. And then this, you know, what at that point was this new... Um, exploratory category, but they're both huge businesses, $100 million accounts with O&M and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, when I had um, AT&T, they used to do many different unique marketing things. One piece of business, and the business was divided up to personal computers, business computers, telephone, blah, blah, blah. So I was on the business side, so we didn't really do a lot of cool stuff. But the consumer side, PCs, I don't know if you remember um, – the, the IBM commercials. I mean, IBM was kind of yes. like the PC back then. They have yeah. some, I'm, I know I'm a little older than you, Eric. Maybe not that much older, but so we were trying to compete with IBM. So they did um, uh, a bunch of kind of cool marketing ideas. One of them was getting involved in sports, right? And um, they had signed a sponsorship deal. Um, to try to compete with IBM, and they were big NFL sponsors and so on. So anyway, I mean, all that's just set up to you ask how I got in. Um, also in New York in the summer, most people left the city <clears throat> to go to the beach. It's called Summer Fridays. I think a lot of cities do that, but um, here uh, New York is a big deal. Well, I, I'm not a beach guy. I fish, but I don't like just to go sit on the beach. So I worked most Fridays. And the other thing, it was, I thought it was fun because no one was in town. You can go to restaurants. I mean, I love being in New York on the Fridays, right? Mm. So I was there at work, and this particular day, the phone was ringing like crazy, and I was the only one there. And it wasn't my phone. I was in someone else's office. Kept ringing, kept ringing. Then it ended up pissing me off. I'm like, damn, answer the phone or leave a message. So <laughs> it, kept, it kept going, so I answered it. 
Man, oh man. So this guy's on the other line, Mr. Sono from AT&T, and he starts cursing me out, cursing out the agency. I mean, he, you know, who the f- do you guys think you are? You can't do this. We've spent a lot of money. You blah, blah, blah. And he's just going off. I'm like, hey, I, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's not my piece of business. This was someone on the computer side. Um, and there's no one else here. You know, let me take your number. No, let me tell you, that was a disgrace. Our next event was Monday. Somebody better be there. Bam. And he hung up the phone. Well, it turns out what he was talking about were these, and, and this was funny because you and I worked on events like this, those training camp, you know, yeah. come down to practice. So we had a series of those set up at NFL training camps for these big AT&T wigs. And um, the one on this particular Thursday was a disaster, I guess. It was with the Giants. Like I, I don't know what happened. I still don't know this day what happened. But this guy, you can imagine the type of people that a New York Giants one or probably some big time people, you know, all the corporate and whatever. And apparently it fell apart. This dude was probably fearful for his job and he tried to cut me a new one. I mean, he just went off. Um, and the next one that he said, you know, you better be there was, was that Monday morning at 8 a.m. in Cleveland with the Browns, right? So I get on the phone with my boss. Um, it's a great guy, Kelly O'Day, who's one of my mentors and uh, still in the ad game, is one of the classics. And he's, you know, kicking in his big place right on Fire Island, you know, women. And, you know, he's doing ad man shit, you know. And um, uh, <laughs> I call him, I go, GK. This guy called, um, you know, I almost wanted him in the face. He was just going off, cursing me out, you know, dude, what happened in, in, with the Giants? He goes, oh, I don't know. Um, that's blah, blah, blah's business. And, and we'll have to figure it out. But, Look, you know, again, this is pre-internet too, so there's no dialing up orbits and getting a ticket and all that shit. You, you played football. Why don't you go to the next one? <laughs> like, what? Just go. Just get a ticket. And you know, like I said, you had to go to a travel agent, stand in line. Yeah. Get a t- you know, that that's just different stuff back then. So I'm, I'm excited, nervous all the same time. He's like, Are you serious? He goes, Yeah. Look, they're just they're all they're clients. I mean, what what else? You know, you know, you know people. I'm like, all right. So I went down to whatever travel world or whatever it's called. Got my ticket. And I show up, and I notice something's different because on the flight out, this guy from the NFL comes. So clearly, this guy, this ATT dude, was pissed off. He called them too. So now everybody's sending everybody. So this guy named Eddie Adams from NFL comes over to me, and he's got a real, real deep voice. I love Eddie. He said, "You have green." I went, "Yeah." He goes, "Don't, don't you worry. We're going to make this all right." So <laughs> we we get we land in Cleveland. David Modell is there to greet the plane. That's another one. You're like, holy crap, that's Art Modell's son. David's my age, great, great guy. Cigar smoker like me. Back then, it was really rare. He shows up with a big Monte Cristo one. Fellas, how you doing? This is going to be great. And, and from then on, yeah, the, all the clients came. It was spectacular. Art Modell showed up. I got to meet him. So anyway, it was a great event. I'm like, damn, that was pretty cool. So I get, I just fly back to New York, forget all about it. Three weeks later, Eddie Adams calls me. He goes, hey, Ralph. I went, uh, what's going on, man? He goes, um, it was a lot of fun. I went, yeah. He goes, hey, you got the interest in working in this joint? And I'm like, what? <laughs> that's how it started. Wow. And I, that, that's how I started because I answered the phone. I tell kids all the time. I use that story a lot when I speak. I'm like, look, be ready. You never know, but be ready. And, how about um, that? <laughs> summer Fridays, man. <laughs> so, so you end up doing work with the NFL sponsorship director type stuff. Right. And and then you start crossing over into this athlete management world. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you come in, you know, being, you know what they always say, if you can't, if you can play, play. And if you can't coach, um, I would slide agent and represent in there as well. If you can't play. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, I knew early, early on that my playing days when I was not going to be like super elite, I was good enough, but I wasn't going to play, but I always still liked, I always saw the game through the eyes of the athlete. Once I got at the NFL, it's like starting at the other end of the tunnel. I mean, you know, you, you, the athletes on one side and management and teams on the other. Well, once you start there, if you keep that athlete mentality, you can see a lot of stuff. You know, I mean, that, um, you know, labor management is the age old, you know, the two sides of the coin. So, um, you know, I always looked at it. I loved my time at the league, but ultimately I was always thinking about the player. And so, you know, as I stayed at the league through however many years I was, by the end, I knew uh, my next step was going to be athletes. And, mm-hmm. and um, I figured the best way I could get involved would be um, uh, agentry. Um, 
you know, without knowing all the ins and outs about that, because that's a whole other podcast on what sports agents are about. But that's how I figured I could do it. Also, remember, there wasn't really, um, you know, had there been a thing called sports science or even athletic training, athletic training wasn't even a thing. Sports science was definitely not a thing. Um, I mean, you know, guys are still smoking cigarettes in the the weight room. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's a whole... It's a whole different deal. I, if there had been something like that, I probably would have probably tried that, tried to be a you when I grew up as opposed <laughs> to whatever. But, um, you know, that wasn't a part of the thing. So that's how I got into being an agent and then, you know, jumped out on my own and eventually um, kind of molded my business into a bigger group um, at that point called ISI. Um, uh, and yeah, and did that for, uh, I don't know, another four or five years. And that's that I finally came to Nike. So by the time I had come to Nike, <clears throat> I had done a lot, um, yeah. a lot, a lot of people, particularly then in the eighties and nineties that had been at Nike started at Nike. And those days are kind of gone, but when I was coming through, almost everybody I met were lifelong Nike people. Um, uh, and that's more of a thing on the West coast back then people kind of go into a place and land, you know, I, I was used to kind of moving around. So, you know, again, like I, I got here, I had already done advertising, been in the league and been an agent. And that was my first job at Nike after all of that. So uh, I had a little bit of a, I don't know if it's an advantage, just a different set of experiences. And you had, I mean, you had worked with some big time athletes, Howie Long, Steve Young, Phil Sims, and then yeah. Akeem yeah. Olajuwon. I mean, you, you represented Akeem. That's the dream. I mean, and you, you helped expand this N- NBA footprint internationally. I mean, he had such an international appeal. That was he was of- way, way more popular overseas. I mean, I, that ended up really helping me once I started to develop NBA global basketball, which um, I think I may have known you right at the end of that run. But I, I got, uh, you know, the dream thing, again, happened a little bit out of uh, – in. It happens. Say it's a, a knew another guy who knew a guy. I mean, it's always somebody you know. It's always about your network and, and your ability to string together relationships. But that, um, you know, that set of circumstances brought me a dream, and we were lucky. It was the two years. Well, I shouldn't keep saying that because the team's going to get mad at me. But the two titles we won were the two years that Jordan retired from <laughs> basketball. But um, dreams hey, funny because anyway you can him, get it, man. Hey, man. First of all, yes, you're exactly right. My <laughs> ring and the trophies are all they say is NBA champions. I don't no say question. NBA champions because Michael Jordan went in the league. But also during that time, I mean, I would talk about it with Akeem, and he would say, "Brother Ralph, we would beat the the Bulls anyway," because they did. They had a winning record against the Bulls because that that yeah. Bulls team didn't match up at the four or five very well. I mean, Akeem destroyed them down below, so it was um, yeah. So, uh, but it was still fun. You know, the first series we beat um, the Knicks. Uh, wow, what a series that was. Um, John Starks, you know, shot from the corner and the dream almost blocks him. It's just wonderful. And then the second series, you know, we just eviscerated the magic with uh, Shaq. So we got beat them, swept them for an NBA title. So, and then I came to Nike after that. <laughs> and uh, the, the the second journey begins. begins. Yeah, let's... Uh... Let's talk about Nike. You know, that's where you and I met. Yeah. Um, I was blessed to be part of that performance council for about five years. And that trend was, setting. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people understand how visionary that whole thing was. All of you guys we had on as an advisory group, what we were doing. I mean, I don't think Nike even really knew. I mean, it was it was the very beginnings of performance, uh, uh, sports performance and analysis and, and um you know, kind of taken, you know, that's really for me where the gym, you know, and the lab kind of began to come together, you know, yes. smart, smart people and strong people are working together and, and becoming one of the same. That was the beginning of that. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't done before, you know, I mean, mm. now, now I see people I'm at, every day and I'm sure you see it too. Every day people acting as if they discovered the stuff we were talking about back in 2000. <laughs> so, so Ralph, that that's a really great point. Imposter syndrome, almost like oh well, yeah. Well, I should I shouldn't say imposter syndrome. I just say being a, an imposter. Yeah. And there's there, how do you differentiate the real deal from the fake deal? Wow. Uh, well, so when I when I encounter it myself, I tend to 
leave it alone. I, I don't want to be like the guy. I used to want to be the guy that always corrected. Mm. You know, hey, well, no, hey, actually, we, you know, but but at times, um, uh, you know, it gets, certainly at my age, I mean, you don't want to get cast as, oh, that's just the old head who, you know, always has something to complain about. So I, I, I leave I leave it alone interpersonally. If, however, and this happens a ton, and I know it happens to you because we're in the same sort of circumstance a lot of times with regard to training and with athletes around and so on. Um, if, for example, I'm in a, I'm around athletes or in a larger group, and I hear somebody kind of say something or position something that I, one I know is either false, certainly if it's false, or they're just positioning the wrong way, or and this happens most often, they don't have no idea of the broader concept that what they're talking about refers to, right? Like lower body output, squatting and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and, and then I'll step up and I'll say, hey, look, you know, I got to tell you, in 2000, we were, you know, 2002, they're like, what? Say, guys this age, guys now that are training kids, if you say 2002, some of them were even born then, hmm. right? Um, and so part, and that's part of the problem is just like, you know, people are just, we're just not very good at history, uh, at all in this country anymore. And particularly in this space and people don't have no idea of the work that some of us were doing around athletes, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, you know, we may not have had the quantitative, um, technology horsepower to crunch a bunch of stuff quickly. But the, and again, this gets, it's all about relationships and your ability, but the ability to look at an athlete and talk about how they develop, there's no, you know, you know, you know better now than you were then or vice versa. You, you, you got to know what you know and you got to be. So that's how I try to address it. I will do it, um, particularly if it's something that I think an athlete needs to hear or if it's in an academic setting. But interpersonally, there's too many, you know, smart people out there now, man. I can't. I can't address them all, <laughs> you know, when I, when I see something that's like, oh, that's not right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's probably the best answer, but that's, that's no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's wise. I mean, there's, to me, there's a time to, uh, to assert yourself, but there's a time just to let somebody bury themselves. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think if, if somebody talks for long enough, people will figure it out. If you have some wisdom. That is very true. And um, I have to say, I mean, um, in the old movie line, the smartest guy in the room is the quietest guy in the room. And and I really think that's really true in something like this. Because, again, remember, at the end of the day, um, the only thing that really matters is your relationship in this space, in this, in this athlete yes. performance space that we're talking about. The only thing that really matters is the relationship you have with that athlete and can they trust you. So, you know, I mean – you know, and and I'm more in youth sports. And my kids would tend to tend to be younger than the ones you you work with. So there's people everywhere. My uncle is, uh, 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 you know, a nutritionist. Okay, get your uncle on the phone. You know, oh, you know what I mean. There's always <laughs> there's always something, and and um, you just kind of have to be um, uh, authentic and trustworthy enough that you know at the end of the day they come to you or not, or they go somewhere else, and you can focus on whoever you're working with. So that, that's kind of where I'm at. It's, you know, I, in a way, weird way, it reminds me of photography because I'm a photographer too. And I'm, I think about, you know, I learned photography like film, you know, remember film, like you had to go buy film and put in the camera. Um, and I used to develop it like the old, I mean, th that's how I learned. And now with digital photography, it, and because I all my cameras are digital now, because I don't really feel like going through all that crap, but it makes it, makes it accessible to everybody. Working with athletes is the same thing now. I mean, you know, it's there's there's a professional person every minute with their own system and scoring and this and that and I got this and then okay I'm gonna use a band okay you're gonna use a band so I'm gonna use a, I'm gonna use sand oh you're gonna use sand okay great I'm gonna put mine in water oh really okay I'm gonna use sand bands and water let's put them let's wrap them up in rubber bands throw them in the water and then dump sand on them man I don't get them I mean it's like <laughs> there's always something and so you just gotta be like all right just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Take that that's wisdom right there. <laughs> so, Ralph, something that just from my personal experience with you that you are a master of is you are a master of creating relationships mm. and making people feel special. And and being authentic to yourself, but why you do that? Can you explain like uh, 
the art to this. Yeah, I man. Uh, first of all, I appreciate that, EK. It, it means a lot to me. I'm, I'm, um, uh, so I, I don't really have the answer. I, I mean, I kind of have the answer at the very top and then the answer at the bottom. That's the best I can give. I mean, the one of the things at the top, I mean, I do know that for me, because again, my skill set is, is more kind of, uh, relationship based. Um, you know, if you can articulate and communicate and listen, um, then you will find business success. And um, I know that for Nike, particularly in that first period of growth, they're fundamentally product sure. I mean, Nike makes awesome product, always has. But the second, or if there's asset one and one A, it's product and then relationships was the other one. And it was just the ability of everyone in that company, but mainly the people that work with the athletes to get them to trust them. Um, so it's it's clearly something, a skill that helps you make a living. Um I mean, how you do it, I don't really know. All I know is that, you know, for me, uh, at the bottom level, at interpersonal level, um, as you said, you know, authenticity is important and and trustworthiness. So, you know, do what you say and say what you do. Um, also, I've, I've always been able to, at least with younger athletes, um, been able to have um, a little bit of, man, you've seen a lot. Um, and so then that brings people to you. Right. Um, whether it's, oh, you know, LeBron James or Kobe Bryant, or if, you know, you used to coach track and blah, 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 or in the business world, um, certainly in my latter years, the ability for, because the Rolodex will keep catch up to you. So like you and I, you know, we hadn't talked in what, three or four months, then you call, you know, it's like, and then we just immediately start talking and and then blueprint and everything comes up. Um, as you get older, that the ability to stay current like that is really important. And not that you got to call everybody in the Rolodex every week. You just have to be current. You just have to know that you know these people. Um, and, and you know, some are going to have a lot of dialogue with some not. But just when, that, when you make the reconnection, it's authentic. It's people often say to me, God, it's like we've been talking the whole time. That's, that's an important deal. Um, you know, I happen to have a pretty decent memory, so... You know, I, that's for me, it's not, you know, I, I can when you call, I automatically flash back to everything we've all we've always we've done together, which is quite a bit. So that's easy. You know, as other folks, maybe you don't talk to as much, but you just got to stay current. And and then, you know, also try to say yes more than no and listen more than talk. And and then, you know, you take it from there. Other than that, I, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm writing this down. Yes, more than no, listen more than talk. That's great. Yeah, the listen part's important. (laughs) I got two big things I wanted to ask you about. Sure, let's go. I mean, just... I'm up now, I'm up now, (laughs) EK. Yeah, you're ready to roll. Before we talk about Tiger and that type of stuff, I would like to ask you, you you know, you identified and signed Yao Ming... Mm -hmm. Dirk Nowitzki yep. and Tony Parker. Yes, what sir. does it mean to have identified these guys? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. I mean, I mean these are, these guys exploded the yeah. NBA around the world. Yeah. No, and they, it had y'all been healthy, all three of them would make it a Hall of Fame. The other two will. I, I mean, you know, it's, it sounds obviously because they were so successful. Um, it sounds like, you know, there was some great prescient thing going on and, and, you know, we're, we're fortune tellers and all that, but it, you know, you gotta think about, um, and again, I don't want to cast any aspersion on all the folks that we worked for. When I say we, me and George Raveling, Rich Shoebrooks, guys that were on the ground there, um, uh, guys like Adam Silver, Mark Tatum from the NBA. I mean, they were in charge of the international NBA. I think all of us, we're kind of, you know, our boss was like, yeah, 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 go ahead, guys, go do that international crap. Like, it was just something to do, and, and you know, we took it seriously. But you got to understand, at least from Nike's point of view, soccer was the global game, right? Uh, and then from the NBA's point of view, it was like, well, you know, we have some pockets of TV growth in China and Philippines. But other than that, eh, you know, Europeans don't really give a damn, you know. And this is mid-'90s we're talking, right? So the um, 88 you know, fall down in the Olympics when uh, uh, Coach Thompson took those poor boys over there in Seoul and they lost. And then we come back to 92 with Dream Team. That began to start, you know, people, that's the reason why we even got budgets in the first place was Dream Team, right? Because that was like, all right, well, there may be something out there, but everyone attributed it all to Jordan. So 
you know, was it really interesting in the game or is it just, you know, U.S. celebrity kicking in? But at least people are, are curious enough. So us, and really it was just us in the NBA because the other companies weren't really into it, gave us a little bit of resource. So we just went, went around looking for people. Then it becomes, you know, am I really seeing something that could really work or am I just caught up in, you know, I'm in Bologna, Italy, and this is just so much fun. And oh, these guys are all great. They can all play in the NBA. Well, actually, none of them can play in the NBA. <laughs> and then and it, and it takes the smart guy to sit there and look at, oh, that's Manu Ginobili. Who is that? And you can kind of tell. So, like, when I saw him the first time, I'm like, whoa, talk to me about this. Then you kind of learn all about, you know, the Italian basketball scene, how good it was in Bologna, which is right in the middle of the country, the pipeline to Argentina, which people just don't know. But Argentina was growing some great basketball players, couldn't find their way to the U.S. Nobody from college was recruiting them, so they go to Italy and play. So you had Sconacchini and then Ginobili. All these guys were really, really good. Um go to Paris. I'm like, oh, there's this 16 year old kid, you know, his dad played in the league. His dad claims to have played with Jordan, blah, blah, blah. Tony Parker senior. I'm like, what? You go and you look at the kid and you're like, Hmm, you know, he's moving around everybody like they're standing still. So you kind of, you know, you think, and then you just let the local folks do their thing because back then, like I said, there's no national or global uh, access point to that type of talent. It's all their stories coming out of the countries. All right, we got a guy can jump yeah. over a can. You know, I mean, <laughs> you hear that they get emails like that all the time. So um, our local folks were just really, really sharp, and they were able. Again, you asked the question. The, the the first thing is the relationship. So it's obviously a little tougher if you don't have language and all this other stuff. Um, I, for whatever reason, international travel always worked with me. And I'm, I'm able to be in a place and then feel a part of the culture and ask, you know, be respectful and try to learn. And so that helps me. So, you know, I don't speak any other than I speak a little Spanish, um, a tiny bit of Japanese, but not enough to, you know, service an athlete, you know. And um, so, you know, you just kind of once you identify and then you start that process, you know, with Tony. You know, his dad did play for the Bulls for like 20 minutes. And so, you know, I just, we got we got a good relationship going, got to meet his mom, his brothers. You, know, you just start the thing. Uh, and then while you're doing that, you got to really assess. And, you know, that's not always hit and miss. I mean, I can give you a bunch of international names that we pulled out that didn't do anything. We just also got, you know, Nowitzki, Parker, and Yao Ming. Um, but there were, there were a few. It's kind of like being a VC. Yes, a hundred percent to hit on a few two out of 10, man, that's, yeah. that, that means you're killing it. And that, yes. you know, we had, and there were other great players that all, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I reflect on a kid um, named Juan Carlos Navarro who played with Paul Gasol uh, in Spain. And, and um, I'm pretty certain uh, Navarro never came to the U S he got drafted by the bulls. He was a really, really good talent, but you know, these guys know their own and he, he knew that, well, he was killing it, killing the Euroleague, even and because the international appetite for him was there, but he never he never took it and he stayed and had a great career. But he kind of knew um, that because I had seen him in some summer league games with NBA guys and you're kind of like, mm, you know, it's not exactly the same, but you could kind of tell the difference. And he probably knew it better than anybody. So he never came. So we had several athletes like that. Um, but it was true that once it happened. Um, then people started open. I'll never forget meeting with uh, the, our senior team, Knight and Charlie Dents, and those guys were running Nike at the time. And at that point, Yao, Dirk, and Tony were in, in now in the NBA. You know, Yao Ming, I, I submit, and, and you were in the South then, I think you were in Kentucky then. Um, you know, it, when he was healthy with the Rockets, I mean, but for Shaq, I think he was the most dominant player in the league. Right. I mean, he, he was, he was, I mean, he was really tall. He could run. He was super soft around the rim um, with a shot. You know, he just could physically couldn't handle it. But as a basketball player, you're like, Ooh, man, this could be really something. Um, and then of course, Dirk and Tony, you know, or Dirk and Tony. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> but I remember our, our management was like, Whoa, this this thing is really happening. And, it, and then, and the same thing with the NBA, because it clearly from a viewing standpoint, um, just the explosion of viewing and, and certainly Dirk and Tony helped a ton with Europe because Europe was really where the challenge was in Asia. People were watching the NBA. Our best athlete chips internationally were in Asia. It was just Europe. that was tough to break those people away from, from soccer a little bit. Um, but yeah, that was good. We got that. I'm proud of getting that started. It's now a thing. I mean, you know, you, it's that, a huge thing. 
Yeah, that was and, pretty. I neat. mean, even in Australia, where I've been a number of times, they love the NBA. They, you know, they ask me who my favorite team is, and I yeah. grew up a Dallas Maverick That's fan. Right. <laughs> uh, my dad's friend was a co-founder, so uh, you know, we we were there when they were really bad. Yeah, yeah. They start out hot, you know, and then Roy, <laughs> the Roy Tarpley thing happened. Oh and God! Then, uh, wow, what a remember name. that? Oh, and yeah. so, uh, but anyway, now you know. What's amazing to me, and I didn't even know this when I met you. It took a couple years because you know we're mm-hmm. we're dealing with football. We're yep. talking relationships. We're talking about human performance. But talk to me about, if you can, about the process of what it's like to sign somebody like a Tiger Woods oh. or a Kobe Bryant or a LeBron James that the whole world knows their value. There's no this isn't Dirk or Tony. Where you you're you're placing a bet on a guy. Yeah. This is this is like basically the whole world knows their value. Like how do you even engage in a relationship like that? Well, the you and I learned this from Phil um and, and and the other guys, but mainly him. I mean, it was you have to be able to compartmentalize uh the the relationship. First of all, with those three, I mean, obviously they come to the table with a built-in org. <laughs> Right. So, you know, with, with, um, you're finding Yao Ming in, in, in Beijing playing with the Bayou Rockets, you're talking to Yao and his mom and dad, maybe a interpreter kind of intermediary. But it's, when you, when Tiger Woods comes to you, um, even a rookie Tiger Woods, there's, there's companies and this and that and agents and lawyer. I mean, stuff is everywhere. Right. So, um, you, you kind of have to carve out somebody's got to be, on the on the mind of the athlete themselves that's normally not the same person that's dealing with all the rest of this crap it's very hard mm-hmm. very hard to do that so you just got to have a really good point of view and, and team together but it all starts with that relationship with the athlete because if that's shitty excuse me if that's not good yeah. give it time <laughs> for the edit if that's not good um the rest of it falls apart Right. And there's plenty of examples like that. Well, you know, we just don't get along. Oh, me and a lawyer get along. Great. Well, sorry, that ain't going to get it done. Um, mm. So you do have to start there. And uh, the the best example of why that matters would be probably our our relationship with LeBron. So, you know, again, like you said, he really wasn't any secret. <laughs> Everybody knew no. from eighth grade on. So, um, you know, a lot of people, lots of layers, lots of this and that. Um, you know, our guy um, that we had who was, you know, the person that LeBron knew and LeBron knew a lot of us because we were able to all get in front of him at different points in time. But the guy that we had is quote unquote, the relation guy was Lynn Merritt, who is the best in the business um, with regard to that. And, um, you know, that one was a long circuitous route, all kinds of people coming in, coming out. There are people involved in the beginning that weren't involved at the end and vice versa um, different money coming from all, you know, it was crazy, but Lynn and LeBron just, you know, had that thing and they were able to kind of communicate on a personal level. Um, even when, cause we didn't really think we were going to complete the, the, the uh, deal. Um, it had gotten so nuts. Um, but at the very end, the very, very end, it came down to, Hey, you know, which company believes in you the most? And you can kind of tell by the way people propose deals and so on. For example, if someone offers you, um, a lot of money, but no obligation on their side to perform, what they're telling you is they're just trying to buy you, right? They're not, you're not in it together. If, if it's more collaborative, um, then it is something that, you know, there's shared value, shared risk on each side. And so that's a hard thing to communicate, particularly to a kid. If you don't have the underlying relationship to even discuss that, because it's an emotional thing, then you don't get it. But that's how we ended up getting LeBron uh, for not the most money. So, and and that's a, um, uh, a kind of a nuts and bolts example of why relationships matter first, and then then the rest of it falls in. Um, and then with the other ones too. I mean, you know, remember Kobe didn't start with Nike. Um, so that brings a whole set of other relationships. He had a, a, a dissatisfaction with the company he was with Adidas and, and was trying to find a way to get, you know, someone to listen to him more. And so, you know, that was a different type of relationship. So I was more on the front line of that with him as a relationship guy. And then with Tiger, um, the only way, you know, I'm not, <laughs> you've never seen me play. Maybe you have. Anyway, I'm shitty at golf. Crappy at golf. <laughs> but um, the only reason I was put on that was the Stanford thing. And um, I was about to say, did that have a connection? Yeah, and that was it. And, and, and 
Earl was the kind of guy that um, I could relate to. I mean, I you know he was very about empowerment, and and you know you say a lot of things about him, but he clearly taught that kid how to focus, um, mm. and uh, probably one of the most focused athletes I've ever been around. So that's the only reason I jumped in there. And then once we got it all done, I I kind of skedaddled back to my <laughs> get back to the football field, but uh, or basketball court, but. Um, yeah, it was, it was, again, about the relationship and being able to navigate all the stuff around it. You know, a lot of people ask, do you have to, um, you know, I don't want to, is it babysitting and all that? That's not really, um, I mean, if that's what you think managing relationships is, then you're probably in the wrong business. Um, it, it, you may babysit, but that's not what, the, what it is. I mean, it is a uh, the ability to kind of sit and be, you know, the sponge for whatever's coming from, whether it's a business associate or a, or an athlete or anyone, um, be the sponge and only kind of, you know, give back what's needed. Um, that, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, 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 the thing. I mean, I remember once a friend of mine said, you know, if something, when something bad happens to people, some people say, well, look, if there's anything you need, let me know. And uh, this person said to me, those are the people that you don't trust that say that. The people you trust are the people that just do something for you. They just do it. You know, when they, when they, when you come home, there's a bag of basket of food or if there's, you know, you look outside and, you know, or whatever, if, uh, you know, you just had a seminar, I'm just going to send you the book with the passages I like, you know, annotated. Um, but if you say, Hey, if you ever, if there's anything, cause what that is really is them getting themselves off the hook. Cause you never really, you know, when's the last time someone said to you, Hey, okay, so anything you need, let me know. Would you ever call me? Hey, you know what, by the way, I do. You never really do that. Right. Yeah. Um, you just, you know, it's just, Hey, here's, I thought you might like this here. Take it, you know, that type of thing. And I'll not always, I'll always remember that. I'll always remember that. And it's really, it's, uh, it's, it's about a connection, not so much kind of words and promises. That's some good stuff, man. <laughs> You get, we get, see, yeah, it's just eight, not even eight o'clock and we're on a roll. I love it. You get a little coffee in you, you start getting oh, yeah, rolling just, and all, and it just, it just starts to come. <laughs> but so, you know, you, you help nurture some really big relationships, but you also, at the same time, I mean, around that time, you're also building this Nike football thing. Yeah, and, man. I mean. Well, you, we, we built it. You were there too. Me. Yeah, I mean, how how think about that um, when we, you you were helping us with a building a model that didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we were building something for um, young athletes that that um, was really about them. Um, although quickly the schools kind of smelled it and came around, but it was really about them. It was about you know athletes doing what they do, but getting better. Because remember, um, you know, the whole stat thing, uh, basketball was nowhere near it. Football was, you know, it's really a baseball deal. You know, the heavy, the stats, the quantification yeah. of the game. And, he, and baseball was there, not for the same reasons we were into it, but just because that's how the game is. There's a lot of numbers and you got to organize them. Um, the, I'll never forget one of your first presentations. Uh, this is way, way back. Um, you had had a slide that talked about simply how much a, a lineman and a cornerback defensive back ran during a game yeah. and the type of running. I don't even think you had any speed or acceleration. It was just literally a calculation of yards, right? It was like one of the first stats, you know, you run 10 miles a game and you run 20 feet, you know, that type of thing. And that is so simple. You think about it now, crap, you could probably do that on your watch. You could figure that out now. But, uh, no question. <laughs> but then you're like, oh my God. It's the most brilliant thing I've ever seen, you know, <laughs> right? And and to be able to bring that to our universe of of high school coaches and 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 athletes, I mean, to me, it was the right turn, and, and it just was it was great. And then it was so, you know, and your your point and right, so it was like, hey, why would you train these two people the same? You know, and that's when people are like, uh, you know, it's got a good point. Get your freaking lineman. You know, your, your, your lineman's not running five miles today. Get him out of there. You know, give him a, a heat stroke. Get him, get his butt back inside and cool him down. I mean, that that is like, oh, man, I didn't even think of it that way. Um, and that's what we were doing. Um, and like I said, now you got it everywhere. But that's what we were doing. And when we had these little events, um, and all you guys would show up as our experts, it, it looked 
it was authentic. That's the only word I could say. It was real. I mean, no it, was, it was real, and kids believed it. Youth and high school coaches believed it. Parents believed it. Um, and it ended up changing the game. I mean, like I said, now there's – I mean, just the fact that there are sports uh, science or sports tech directors in every team sport now proves that we were right. Now, that doesn't happen if we don't do what we do. I really believe that. I really no question. That. And, you know, it's interesting to me is some of the best coaches I've ever been around were in that group. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Jess Simpson, yeah. Jess Simpson was uh, Buford High School yeah. in Georgia. Yeah, right. Now he's working for the Atlanta Falcons. Oh, is that where he is now? Uh, you, wow. Yeah, he's at the Atlanta Falcons. He's a, I think he's a D-line yeah, coach. A he and I still chat. Yeah. Uh, I got coaches from that group that still reach out to me. Wow. Um uh, that we talk about stuff like DeSoto High School in Texas yeah. started using tracking and they kind of led this revolution there. Mm-hmm. And then, but it's been so cool because a lot of these coaches, the money isn't the same as at the highest level. Right. Right. So, yeah. so there's a, they are there. They could go up to college and be a good position coach and then work their way up. But a lot of those guys are still there for the love of something that's a little bit different. Right. They are masters at their creating culture. Yes. Some of the best talks. I ever heard on developing team culture were at these high school events. You're so right, man. You're so right. And the two programs you just called out, Buford when Simpson was there, and then, of course, I mean, the legendary Claude um, down there at DeSoto. I mean, what a, you know, he has since left, but what a, talk about a culture. Wow. Um, and and the ability to take, and they were a track school too, so they really liked what you, yeah. what you had to say. I mean, they, you know, they were taking – you know, um, all kinds of notes on the type of analysis you were spitting out because those guys were using it on the track for the football and for the football for the track. I mean, you know, Vaughn Miller, I work with him on another thing. He's an ex-DeSoto guy, and he talks about it all the time, you know. And uh, I th- think about that. I mean, DeSoto High School, now it's a big school. It's not like it's some tiny little thing. But, I mean, yeah. you know, little high school south of Dallas, you know, and those guys are taking the athletic performance thing to a higher level. And now, now a lot of schools do. I mean, in Texas, that's the price of entry now, I would imagine. Um, but <laughs> but still, I mean, you know, we're talking about whatever. What are we talking about? The early 2000s, it was a little different. No question. No question. And that was exciting. And uh, the fact, you know, too, that you led a group with, you know, there's a guy named Jay Matthews who's no longer at Nike, but he, you know, he comes out and, flies out and sees me and we have a great conversation. Then he comes out again and, and then he's like, Hey, we want you to be part of this thing. And, uh, it was just, it was a very special period of time in my life because it was every time, you know, I, I flew out there we're talking cleats (laughs) and, and I have pictures still of, of you guys actually going, okay. Like it was really cool because they listened your folks listened. Mm -hmm. They're like, now that we know that we have all these different position requirements mm-hmm. what would that look like in shoes in clothing and this and it, it was so fascinating to me because you when you're around a lot of type a personalities not everybody's listening all the no time. not at all and you had a group of people that listened and uh and then i would go and soak it up you know i'd be like how can i walk away from this three-day experience a better <laughs> coach or person yeah. or whatever well i think the interplay between um what you were providing and what we did uh, on the shoe side and the pearl side was really based on the data knowledge that you dropped right so you know i go back to that first slide about you know the amount of ground cover during a game you had way more data than that. I mean, understand, you know, before guys like you, we would sit and we tried it. We, I mean, obviously, you know that there's big athletes and small athletes. You know, you don't need to be a scientist to, to know that, right? So if you're making shoes, you're like, uh, if a guy's 300 pounds, what kind of shoe does he need or she needs? And if, if someone is 100 pounds, was you, you right. can get yourself there. But that's really all we had. Right. I mean, not, you know, and then we had good people at that. So it's not only can they, Jason Kidd, oh, he's, he's this weight, but he's so quick. So that means that, you know, when he puts torque on a, on a outsole because of the combination of his acceleration, his weight, that's going to be a force that's different than a smaller guy like Anthony Hardaway. So what does that mean? Oh, zoom air. That becomes the, the answer to that question, right? You need air, but you need it in the lower profile because he's so big and strong, he'll shear right off a regular ear back. That we could get there for that, right? And that's pretty good. You know, we can build a good. But what you were bringing in, when we got into more analytics, 
it was not only, you know, the simple calculations of weight, it was then about direction, acceleration, recovery, yeah. time, you know, the period of exertion at maximum output, all that kind of stuff. You're like, oh, crap. And that came from you, you know, and, and if you're a product guy, you just eat that up. Give me more, give me more, give me more. <laughs> now, the downside is, and as I say this to people all the time, you know, you can always have too much. It's just how fine on the how fine do you want the teeth in the comb? Yes. So we could, and we did at times, try to get all that data. Oh, okay, I need a... Let's have a shoe. Let's have a shoe for alignment. Yeah. Okay. Let's have a shoe for an alignment. Okay. That makes sense. Let's have a shoe for a defensive lineman. And let's have a shoe for an offensive lineman. Oh, really? Well, Eric said the defensive line more of an angle. Blah, blah. Okay. That may not be commercial. That might be too. That might be too. We may be doing too much. That's right. And so that, you know, and you have to go through that. And we went through that. I mean, I remember at one point in basketball, um, we had shoes for each position a one, two, three, four, and five shoe. I loved it. Because to me, that's like geeking out on all the, you know, what's the difference between, you know, and it ended up being the consumers like, yo, man, give me a break. This is too, They're confused. too much. <laughs> too much. Yeah. Yeah. So when you kind of translate that science into commercial reality, you do have to break it down more from, you know, what are the actual performance buckets to what are the end benefit buckets? They're not always the same. Uh, and mm-hmm. so for like for, for an athlete in basketball, it's like, look, light and heavy, check. Um, maybe there's some lateral versus, you know, endurance thing for big guys check and then ankle comfort. That's it. You give me anything else to talk about. Uh, I can't hang. I can't go from, okay, I'm a swing guy. I'm on the wing or I'm maybe two running the baseline and, you know, I, look, yeah, maybe different, but not different enough for me to have two different, you know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, no question. That's, that's part of that deal. It's pretty, pretty cool. But it, you know, it's an iterative process. That's why people were kind of, so interested when you would come up and talk to kind of get all of that, then we had to sit and see ultimately what's real in terms of commerce. Mm. But in terms of satisfying the athlete, one thing I will say is that the one thing that data did illuminate is, you know, forget about the business part, the the footlocker part on the field. We do have to solve these issues, right? So everything you would bring up is real comes from real athletes. So we do have to solve, you know, um, for a left tackle versus a right tackle, there may be a certain thing that we've got. So, and so we would do it. Now, you don't always talk about it and try to sell it, but you do. You know that's real on the field. And if you're going to be at least a, a company at, at the size of Nike, you gotta you got to take care of those performance buckets. They're not always the same as the commercial buckets, but you got to take care of them. Want to get the shoe business? No, I love it. No, I don't. But I just love your thinking. <laughs> So Ralph, mm-hmm. let's wrap up with this. Like, right. you, you, you've transitioned out of that, but you you've got so much going on right yeah. now. I mean, I mean, you're working with youth sport. Yep. You're you have you're an angel investor. Yeah. What's got you excited right now? Like, what are you doing that's just like it's it's driving your engine? Yeah, I mean, you know, but for the most recent stuff with COVID and and the whole George Floyd thing and the discussions around race, that's mm. you know kind of really cast a blanket over thing and rightly so, but it affects everything that I've been working on anyway. I mean, the, the, um, angel investing thing has been super, super rewarding. Um, it also is challenging. I read somewhere where, you know, people were saying <laughs> that folks that, that like me will retire from one and then go into the, not the second career. You actually work much harder in the second career. And, and that's definitely true. Um, there's so much dialogue, but I do our company, Oregon Sports Angels, is kind of focused in sports. Why well, no, all focused in sports and kind of techs. So not all the companies we have are tech companies, but most of them are. You know, we're in the Northwest. We try to stay focused on the Northwest. Um, and there's just a wellspring of talent here. I mean, you know, Portland and Seattle, um, I wouldn't say it's at the level of the Bay Area, but the the venture world and the startup world is super vibrant up here. Um, and, you know, because all the shoe companies here, there are a lot of people rotating around with ideas around sports. Um, lots of people. Um, uh, so, you know, with that, the challenge is you see deals all the time. Uh, they're not all good deals, but, but you see a lot, see a lot of great ideas. And I like that. And then the other thing is you, most of these folks are younger um, and, you know, you coach them you know, which is inherent. I mean, that's, they call me coach green. That's one of the reasons why I love that part. And, uh, you know, you get a different business, so we'll have different businesses. So kind of have fundamental 
sports tech company, like a company called Strive, which is centers in the clothes. And we've talked about this kind of stuff for years. Um, then I've got a kind of a standard apparel company, a very ancient company that does secondary manufacturing, which is taking discarded goods from one industry, reformulate, reformulating and redesigning them into a different type of product. So it'll take, mm. for example, seat leather from an airline, take that, which they normally would throw away, right? Literally throw away or burn. They, this company takes us called Loop Works, and they turn it into garment uh, uh, bags and, and purses. And so it's just beautiful stuff. Um, what else we have, uh, have our first cannabis, um, uh, athlete, um, THC diversified. Yeah. We're, we're, we're all over. And, you know, this is a group called Mendy that's run by the, uh, Rapino sisters and, um, uh, and Megan and Rachel. And, uh, you know, I was all skeptical. I, I you know, my history, I don't, don't have a history with marijuana or anything like that. Not, I'm not saying that other than I just don't know what it does for you. So, you know, in this whole thing <laughs> uh, up here, up here in, in Portland, you know, it's been legal for a while. So there's all kinds, and I'm sure you see it too. Cannabis, this, this, I mean, there's stuff everywhere. I must've gotten, I don't know, 20 uh, business ideas once I left Nike about this. And athletes, you know, there's a fair amount of athletic support because a lot of people have found remedy, particularly for pain, you know, in this side of the piece. So, um, you know, but I got to be honest, there wasn't really any plan that I was excited about getting involved. And then when the Mendy group came, they presented, I thought, really well thought out, not on the cannabis side, but on the, the more hemp side, very holistic, very relate, related to a particular point of time in your training cycle and always around inflammation, which I think just focus and it does work for that. Um, there's just not as much science out there. So, you know, it's we decided to get in there. We'll see it, how it goes. Obviously, with COVID, you know, a lot of stuff is kind of flipped upside down. But, you know, knock on wood, all of our companies are still in business and trying to trying to make it through. Um, we've invested in, I believe, 10 now, 10 or 11 um, uh, total investment out. There's around three, I don't know, three and a half million bucks, I think. Um, so that's been, that's been great. And then the other side, as you mentioned, the coaching, so I'm still trying to do that involved in my community here. Um, you know, it's a, it's these times with young athletes, you talk about leadership and leadership is probably not the right word, but, uh, what's the right fellowship or, or, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but it is so crazy. Can you imagine being a teenager right now? And seeing all the stuff you're seeing, I mean, the athletes don't know if they're even going to be on the field. Um, stuff's happening all over them. They may be hearing different stuff at home than when they get amongst their friends. I mean, and yeah, the race thing on top of it is a really, really difficult time. And whether you're a leader or a coach or a mentor, whatever the hell you are, the world needs you. And, and that's an important deal. I mean, that, to me, um, you know, is it's funny because it, because things change so much, we don't even know where we're coaching. Right. You know, if you get athletes together, can you go to the school? Can you get inside the school? Do you have to get off the oh, field? Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And um, I can only imagine. I mean, I'm confused. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the damn coach. I can only imagine what they feel. So we decided, we've been doing, you know, different things like um, more gorilla type training where you just show up somewhere and you, whatever, wherever you are, you make a workout out of it. I mean, it, it ends up being fun, but, you know, you know, it's, you've got to come, you got to make it up as you go. So it's really the time is now. And um, so that is taking up, you know, the business side, probably on, on this um, uh, investment deal, but personally being in, you just got to be there for your kids right now. So, and other people too, but I'm really worried about the kids. So that's what I've been doing. I have three of them. I'm always thinking about them. And right now, like, how are we going to keep them active when we can't see their friends as much? Yep. And um, we we do a lot of crazy American Ninja Warrior type stuff That's around the so house funny. and on the lawn and just <laughs> crawling and climbing and just being crazy. And that's yeah. right now more than ever. They need to know that they're loved. Yeah, and, 100%. Um, well, hey, Ralph, man, you you are a rock star. EK, and, it's uh, good to see you, man. Good to hear you. Good to be likewise. here. Thank you so much. And uh you know, I, I'm, I've, I don't throw these things around um, gratuitously. You were there at the foundation at a real critical point in history. And I'll never forget that. Um, again, we may not have known what we were doing. <laughs> you did. But I think generally we didn't kind of know what we were doing and building this whole thing around Nike football and sports performance. But it's changed the world. 
Um, and and also, I think fundamentally, um, you know, because this is really what I'm all about, it fundamentally changed the way people think about preparation and work. I mean, it sounds super corny, but, um, you know, we always talk about, you know, pay the cost to be the boss. If you you got to do the work. And what you were able to do is to give us the real guidelines and, and, and mile markers on, on doing the work, whatever it is. And that translates off the field. I mean, I have four or five kids that have gone, competed in college, come back, and, um, you know, they're trying to get jobs. And they, uh, they all talk about, you know, um, the process of, of working with me and training and not so much the game or the competition or the race, but the process up to it. And that process was made a hundred percent by the stuff that you were doing. So I appreciate that. Um, and it really has just been great to have your name in, 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 in my Rolodex for sure. <laughs> You're the best brother. <laughs> Thank you so much. Of course, but be good. If you need anything, let me know and um, keep me posted on the next thing too. I'll be, you know, I'm on your Twitter feed, so I'll find out what's going on, but let's stay in touch. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the Blueprint Podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum. Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.